I want to start by showing you a picture. So what you are uh, just about to see is a chaotic jumble of matchsticks scattered on the floor and a matchbox next to it. Now, if I tell you there was some kind of an external agency that caused for this matchsticks to come out of the matchbox, it was probably a careless bump or a gust of wind, some kind of external force that caused to do that. It is a very plausible scenario, right? It's very plausible that just scattered out of, came out of the matchbox. Now I'll show you another picture, the next picture. Now if I tell you that this was caused by an external agency, which was caused by an external agency, but was a um, random act of raw power that created it, obviously you will say, no, there is something more to it. Right? The first one was created by, caused by something, and this is created by someone. There's a big difference, because you see an initial MJ. So you infer that somebody really thought through it and arranged it, a person. It has to be a person, and that person has to have an initial MJ. And you can infer that could have been Michael Jackson. <laughs> Michael Jordan, <laughs> Magic Johnson, <laughs> Mick Jagger. <laughs> oh, but we know that this is all not possible, that most likely it was done by an MJ we all know, which is uh, Mary Jane, the Spider-Man's girlfriend, right? Like, remember her, right? So, the point I'm trying to make here, I mean, some of you are new, we are on a series called Quest. And last week we started and we saw there are three M's, which is our inherent quest for meaning and our innate moral nature and our insatiable craving for mystery, suspense, What's out there? These three M's really point to an external agency out there. There is a God out there. Everybody knows that. That's why the Bible says that there is no God, says the fool in his heart. There is somebody with some common sense will know that there is, so no one will say there is no God. Even atheists, smart atheists like Richard Dawkins, we saw last week, he never said there is no God. He will never say there is no God. He said there is probably no God. Because that's a smart atheist. If anybody says to you there is no God, he is a stupid atheist. According to atheists. Right? Like, you know, so what I'm trying to say is that the, the proof for God, the existence of God, is a self-evident truth 
that is something we need to experience that is ingrained in us in the universe around us but but the problem though that god we derive from our philosophical uh, propositions or all these constructs is more like an impersonal entity a random uh, a force of, of of pure will and power and believe it or not when i grew up in the 80s or when i went to high school in the 80s and the, then eventually to college atheism was a big fashion atheism was a big fashion it was really cool you know we will just say that oh i'm an atheist so the girls will all kind of oh yeah he's cool he's an atheist really means he's a smart guy in the 80s it was a big deal now things have changed i don't know if you notice this in our culture spirituality has become a fashion it's very uncool to say that you are an atheist nowadays i'm spiritual and the epicenter of spirituality is right here at hollywood which everybody thinks is the pit of hell i mean that's what people think but you will see more spiritual <laughs> people in hollywood than india where i'm coming from where spirituality kind of started in some way because it is a fashion now it is a fashion to say that yeah i believe in a supreme being supreme being and a supreme entity uh that that intelligence out there but the moment you talk to them about god who wants to enter into a relationship with you no 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 that's no, not the god with capital g no they are not willing to accept that because the god for them is something not someone they don't want to attribute a personality to god now this has been an issue right from the foundation of particularly western civilization and you probably know that if you have taken some basic courses in uh, uh, philosophy even at a high school level you probably know the idea of aristotle's unmoved mover i may have a picture of the uh, of the universe of aristotle's prime mover theory where uh the greek the ancient greek philosophers conceived this uh, uh yes that universe where earth is at the center and the moon and the sun you know so you know that that was their understanding of the universe the the prototype right the the pilot version of their design but they they you can see at the very end of it there is a realm of the prime mover or the unmoved mover as they call it because aristotle posited that everything in the universe is moving and if everything is moving something else has to move it and then you go down the wire you see there is ultimately there is an unmoved mover a mover which moved everything which which cannot move itself like you know an unmovable or unmoved mover or the first cause or the prime mover uh, exists in the realm outside everything we see around it so this is the, our, our idea of god is shaped by the by the understanding of this unmoved mover who will not be touched or altered by the reality out there which exists out there but that unmoved mover is an impersonal entity it is not the god we know 
but it is, a, it, it, it is an ineffable God who is distant and called to the realities that we face. And our Enlightenment thinkers actually borrowed the same concept of God, as you all know. Isaac Newton believed in God. Albert Einstein believed in God. But the, the God they believed and the God we believe are a little different. A whole lot different, actually. Because the God of the Enlightenment thinkers were derived after this idea of the unmoved mover and the, what we call a deism. Deism is the, is the concept that God is the supreme creator who created the whole wide world and set the universe in motion and stepped back and say, okay, run it. I have nothing to do with it. I have nothing to do with you. It's up to you. And God will not stoop down to check on us. So that was their God. Again, an impersonal entity of the deist God. And, and again, we, you probably heard the, phrase, the phrases like the God of the gaps or the philosopher's God. That's the best way to explain. These are, this is what we call a philosopher's God, this impersonal entity, right? God of the gap means the, the God who comes in and fill in the scientific, the, what is missing in the scientific knowledge. Whatever we don't know by the, by the construct of science is what God is. That's what we call God of the gaps, which is continuously being filled. It is, this, it is this raw power that animates the universe, but not interested in us. So that, 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 was, the, that was the concept. Now, in parallel culture, like India, for example, where we, come, where we come from, as you probably know, out of the six major world religions, three of them came out of the Indian subcontinent. Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. And the mother of all of this is Hinduism. So the foundational philosophy of Eastern religion is the understanding that the first creation was done by a similar unmoved mover. And in Indian Vedic philosophy, we call that entity Brahman. Brahman is the ultimate God figure in, in Hinduism, Brahman. The word Brahman in Sanskrit, which is the holy language of the East or in, the, in India, Brahman really means a breath, breath, breath. That's what it really means. In the beginning was breath. Now, what is the best way to depict breath? You cannot write breath. You cannot paint breath. But breath, the best way to understand breath is the sound, right? So this sound is what we popularly known as Om. The Hindus chant, now the all Westerners chant without knowing what it is, and people who go to yoga and do the, this thing, they chant uh, uh, Om. Om is the depiction of the supreme energy or the unmoved mover of Hinduism, Om, right? Like, you know, they believed in this. Again, Om or the Brahman is this unapproachable entity which is the 
prime mover which exists outside our understanding. All other gods you see in Hinduism, like 33, 330 million deities on Hinduism are nothing but manifestations or maya, which is really not there, of this one impersonal entity. It is not a he, it is not a she, it is an it. It is an it, impersonal entity. That's why it is very popular in the West. Now, even in Chinese culture, you know the idea that in the Chinese culture, we believe there is something called Tao, Tao, right? Like, you know, existed, which is the, which is the principle that gave order and purpose to the universe. It is the way, they call it, the way. And this Tao has, has an energy, a life force called, called Qi, Qi which, is, uh, which, is, which is the energy that comes out of it, which creates a, a dynamic balance in this world uh, through, the, through yin and yang, and you probably know this in the popular culture. And that's why the Chinese people practice Tai Chi, Tai Chi, which is, you know, it's a way of balancing the life forces and align with Tao, which is the main principle that, that, that brings purpose to the universe, right? The way. Now, the Greek philosophers eventually developed that into a concept called Logos. Logos. It is very much like Tao in the Chinese language. Actually, I've heard some of the Chinese translations of the Bible in which John chapter 1, we will read in a minute, where the logos we translate English as word, in Chinese language it is translated as Tao. Tao, in the beginning was Tao, and Tao was with God, and Tao was God, because it's very similar concept. The logos of Greek philosophers was essentially this, this universal principle, the life force which, which, which brings harmony in this world, the creator force. And that is in all of us, but we can touch it because it is an impersonal entity. Now, why am I saying all of this? This is not a philosophy class, but the problem is that today, if you ask me, the most challenge I face in this world is not atheism. That's far gone, in my opinion. But religion, you cannot kill religion, you cannot kill God. Believe me, people have been trying to kill religion for many powerful tra people try to do it. Religion will never die, but it will mutate into other forms which can be even, more, even worse than the destruction of religion. So the one way this religion has mutated into our culture is this what we now is popularly known as New Age spirituality. There is nothing new about it. It is very, very old spirituality. Believe me, I'm coming from there and we created some of this years, 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 millions of years ago. Sorry, no, thousands of years ago. <laughs> But the New Age spirituality, and the, you know, if you go to many church, I mean, according to the latest statistics, there is a new sect, there is no new category called nuns, nuns, not the Catholic nuns, N-O-N-E, yes, uh, nuns, which are what we call people who are spiritual but not religious. That's what they say. They are spiritual people, but they are not 
religious. What that means is that they believe in this impersonal God. They believe there is a supreme being out there. They believe there is some kind of a God figure, but they are not willing to attribute personality to it. They will not follow an organized religion. We are against organized religion. We won't follow institutional religion. They would rather follow Kylie Jenner or whoever in X or Twitter, right? Like, you know, that's what they do. See, there is no way to get around this. We all follow something or someone, and ultimately that's the way we are created. But coming back to, this has become an epidemic, particularly in the Western world. It kind of makes my blood boil because I'm coming from where this was produced, mass produced and marketed to all of you. And I know what it can do to a country and culture. I'm a victim of that in some way. <laughs> so, but new age spirituality has become this a popular, popular mantra among people. And, and again, uh, the, the pop culture icons and the spiritual pundits of the new, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the new age is promoting this. And even in Hollywood, as you know, Star Wars, you remember the, may the force be with you. That makes us feel good, right? May the force be with you. Because that force is impersonal. It's a faceless force. That makes us feel good to believe in that kind of a God. Now that has become our religion because, so, you know, things like Star Wars or the force has become a, 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 a celluloid proxy to our desire to have a God. But it has to be an it, a force, a random raw power, but not a person. Now why? Why, why do we have this aversion towards a personal God? I think the answer is very simple. We want a religion without responsibility. The moment you put face to God, you know God is looking at you. Many people don't believe in God, they are simply afraid of Him. They want the comfort of a creator without the constraints of a covenant. They want spirituality with no strings attached. But the moment you put a person, now the game changes, so my opinion, it is simply an act of laziness or they are afraid of that, attributing that personality. But I also think that philosophers would say that, hey, because our, our idea of God is so shaped by the Aristotle's unmoved mover, uh, philosophers would say, well, attributing a personality to God means that God becomes a person that really means that God will have passion and emotion that will change his outlook and uh, you know we always particularly in the Western culture we look at human emotion as some kind of weakness that we cannot attribute to God passion is something that a weakness because it will change us now God cannot change right so we God cannot have emotions not from the part of where we are coming from. That's not the way we think. We think emotions are actually a powerful experience that gives us depth and strength to personality. A person who is completely righteous, but who is so cold and indifferent to you, do you want to hang out with that person? A person who always does the right thing, 
always says the right thing, but he has no emotion at all. Never get upset, never expresses his or her love. And do you, do you, do you, want, do you think that's some kind of a strength? No. The point is that the emotions and the passion is something that, 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 that gives the, the breadth, to, the dimensions to our personality. And the ability to change is a part of our sovereignty, right? If I am God, if I am sovereign, then I will have the ability to change myself. That's part of a sovereignty. Oh, I'm stuck. I'm God. Sorry, I can't do that. No, that's anyway. That's a, that's a, that's a different way. That, that's the way philosophers justify it. But if you ask me, I think the personhood of, of God is very obvious from even by observing the nature. So I'm going to quickly run through two observations from the nature, okay? One, two laws that exist in the nature, if you ask me, foundational to our physical universe and our moral universe. You know them, but I'm going to... So, first one is called natural law. Natural law. You probably heard about this because the law, for example, you know, back in the days, the Isaac Newton's apple, he wondered why the apple fell right below. Why didn't, he, why didn't go up? It, it goes down. It goes down in, in America. It goes down in India, wherever it is. So he realized, as you know, the law of gravity and the law of thermodynamics, even the law of quantum mechanics. And there are a lot of things which is the universe. There is, there is a law that operates that everybody, all the scientists agree, and all the scientists believe that actually without natural law, the science cannot function. It's interesting. Yesterday, we had a meeting of all the uh, uh, scientists in our church. So we have a, something called a STEM cohort, people who work in the science field or who are interested in the science field, we have a monthly gathering here. So it was yesterday, we were having it in my office in that area. And uh, as you know, in Pasadena, JPL is on one side and Caltech is, so there are a dime a dozen. There are a lot of, lot of STEM people around, right? And a and lot, lot of them are in our church too. So we had a fascinating conversation about many things. And by the way, since we are talking about it, if you see uh, in the bulletin, you see one of this called February 17, Origins of the Modern Electric Vehicles. Now that's very interesting. So the idea, it's a funny story they shared, basically, uh, before even Elon Musk was born, uh, a prototype of the electric car was developed by our Caltech people right here. And they, and they, uh, they challenged the MIT to come and compete uh, with them. And it was so fascinating that that happened in the 60s or 70s. Anyway, uh, so we are going to tell that story. And if you're interested, sign up. But the point is that uh, one of the, the, the leader of our group is Dan Crichton. Most of you know he was our previous chair. He is a technocrat uh, who runs the artificial intelligence and some other stuff at JPL. So he said, uh, you know, Matthew, one of the fascinating things is that JPL created this Mars rover, you know that, right? Perseverance, which was created right in our backyard. They assembled in our backyard. I actually saw that before going to, the, going to Mars, right? I went there and, and I prayed for it, even though they didn't ask me. I was just watching and I just said, that's why I'm standing there. <laughs> anyway, but it's happening in our backyard. Anyway, so, but he was saying that, that that Mars rover, we shot from here, 
It traveled seven months through space, seven months continuous travel, millions of miles to this planet, and then it parked, it parked five meters away from the exact spot they measured. Can you believe that? So they already measured where these things are going, this thing is going to park, and it parked just five meters away from that park. That kind of precision. I need five meters to park my car by the curb, right? This is, this is millions of miles away after seven months of travel. And then the next thing he said was very interesting. He said, that's why I believe in God. Because he said, if there is no predictable universe, if somebody hasn't managed these equations and formulas of mathematics, by the way, mathematics is not something you invent, it is something you discover. It is already existing. The Creator has ordained this, arranged this so precisely without which you cannot calculate something like this. So he said, that's why I believe in God. So this is what we call natural law. God has planted this. The law exists. Every scientist, including Richard Dawkins, believe that there is a natural law. Now, obviously, if for a law to exist, there has to be a mind behind it, right? You cannot just go to your computer and do some random keystrokes and suddenly it won't become a law. It has to be a crystallization of our thought. It has to be a codification of our intellect. There has to be creativity involved. And you can clearly see, if there is a law, there is a mind behind the law. It has to be, right? Now second, very quickly, the second law is what we call the moral law. The moral law. And part of it which we saw, you know, there is this innate nature in us to act justly, to play fair, to play fair, even people who don't believe in God. And that's the way we, pro we are programmed. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said this, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. I hope you have all read Mere Christianity next to the Bible. To me, that is the most important book you should read. And he created this hypothesis of the oughtness. We have this insatiable quest for oughtness. We ought to do this way. We ought to believe in this way. It's a kind of British English. But you know, the oughtness is very, very interesting. That's the way God has programmed. Then he developed the thesis further and the next quote is here. It's a big one. In fact, of course, we all do believe that some moralities are better than others. The moment you say that one set of moral ideals can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of, the, one of them confirms to that standard more nearly than the other. But the standard that measures two things is completely different from either. You are in fact comparing them both with some real morality, admitting that there is such a thing as a real right, independent of what people think, and that some people's idea get nearer to the real right than others. You know what I'm trying to say. The moment you say that we need to be fair, 
we need to act justly, we automatically assume there is an absolute standard of morality out there without which we cannot say. This is entered, the, the whole idea of moral law is predicated on, on, that, on, on that feeling that we all have. Right, I'm going to take a, this one step further to say that it is not just about being moral and act justly. And another obsession we all struggle with is, you know, what you probably heard, you know, altruism, altruism. Even if you don't believe in God, even if you are not a nice person, for example, while you're, driving, you're going back, you know, you walk around your neighborhood and suddenly you see a house on fire, a house on fire. You see a burning building and you see a little kid crying on the second floor and, and the smoke is, is, is kind of, you know, engulfing that child. And what is your immediate instinct? To jump to that burning building and to save that kid. That's our instinct. And I bet 60% of you will actually act on it. You will not think about, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't think. The first instinct is to go and help that kid. Even if you don't believe in God, it doesn't matter. Because that's, that, you know, we have this altruistic nature in us, which goes against everything we know of the theory of evolution. Because according to the evolutionary, theo- uh, evolutionary hypothesis, our, our fundamental instinct is the instinct for survival. Survival of the fittest. If I follow the evolutionary theory, yeah, let the kid or whoever burn. That's good because survival of the, the fittest. I should survive. That's the way the universe should operate. But no, we all know, including Charles Darwin will jump into that burning building and save the kid because there is this moral law. God has programmed in us an empathetic heart to feel for other people. Unless you're a psychopath, that, that's a medical condition, other conditions or something like that. Basically, fundamentally, we are obsessed by this, the, the well-being of our, our, our tendency to, to sacrifice ourselves for the well-being of others, even at the risk of our own welfare. That's a human tendency. That's what we call the moral law. That is why we praise a soldier who died for his country. If your theory, if you're looking at it purely from a materialistic perspective or evolutionary perspective, a soldier who is dying for his country is ignorant. But we know that is not true. He died for all of us and he should be praised because that's the moral law in us that is telling us. That's why Mother Teresa is not some kind of a delusional person living in a delusional world, sacrificing her life for others because... We know that 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 goes with the moral law God has programmed in us. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because if you really look at the natural law, which gives us the order and harmony of the universe, and if you look at the the moral law, which shows the empathetic heart behind this, uh, this world, then we can really see a mind and the heart behind this force, can we? If there is a moral law, there is a mind. Sorry, if, if there is a natural law, there is a mind. If there is a moral law, there is a heart. An entity with a heart and a mind is what we call a person, right? 
When we say God is a person, that doesn't really mean that God is like us with two hands and two eyes. And that's not what we mean when we say God is a person. We say God is an entity with an identity. And his moral, natural law points us to his rational mind. And his moral law points us to his empathetic heart. Now this God, he, God, if he exists, if you believe God exists, then that God cannot be a cold, indifferent entity who lives in a different realm, but he should be somebody who is the embodiment of love and justice and compassion because that's what we see in the universe. And so that's why we believe not just in a God, we believe in the God who stooped down to this world to be with us, to relate with us, to experience this intimacy with us, and that is the good news of the Bible. Stand, can you stand with me for the reading of the word? Like I said last week, sermon ended. So this is from, I'm going to read from John chapter 1, 1 to 3, and then skip to verse 14. Now the word, word, <laughs> is the word logos in Greek, this impersonal force. So I, I'm going to read, I'm going to replace that with logos as I read so that you can get the feel of it. In the beginning was logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation of eternal Logos we finally get to meet the mind behind the natural law and the heart behind the moral law. The philosopher's God of reason suddenly became a personal God of revelation. The faceless God of new age spirituality now has a face, the one whom we can see, and the one who sees us. And God is not an idea to be pondered, but a person to be experienced. Would you take the first step with me today to experience him? Let's pray. Oh, creator of the universe, how silly we have become, even at the peak of our scientific knowledge, we still create idols, believing in faceless forces because we cannot take responsibility. We confess our sins for the vain speculations that the imaginations and the constructs we made with our philosophy and science to take ourselves away from you. 
and we come back to you fully surrendering ourselves. We pray that you will instill us with your divine mind and with your empathetic heart so that we will go out from here, lead a life of love and justice and compassion that you show to this world so that we will become the real proof for God's existence in this world. Amen.